For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is infuriating to me, I guess, you know, as I'm now a writer, like that's what I do. Like I cover these kinds of stories. And what happened here is that some U.S. official told an AP journalist that this, a a Russian missile has landed in uh, in Poland and killed two people. And we now, the journalist was fired yesterday, I believe. And we now know that the AP editor, the Associated Press editor said, it doesn't seem like a U.S. official would lie about this. And so they ran the story. Well, it turns out that, you know, it wasn't a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian, you know, S-300 missile that was fired, which, by the way, are Soviet-era missiles. So they are produced by Russia. So there's a lot of people afterwards who changed their headline from a Russian missile to a Russian-made missile, which, you know, is obviously very different, right? Like, obviously, countries are somewhat responsible for arms proliferation, right? Like, when the U.S. sells Saudi Arabia a bomb, and then they use that bomb to blow up a, a school bus full of Yemeni children, yeah, like, the U.S. bears responsibility for that. But is that the same thing as a U.S. bomber blowing up a school bus full of children? No, it's obviously not. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, episode number 153, and today, returning to the show after over 100 episodes, I can't fucking believe it, Kyle Anzalone. How you doing, dude? Pretty good. Thanks, man, for having me back on, and it really doesn't seem like it's been that long. Uh, you must be putting out episodes pretty quickly. Yeah, well, I'm about... Almost as many as you, or well, almost as many per week as uh, you and Connor, and I know uh, sometimes Will as well, uh, kind of put them out. You guys stay really, really busy over there at Conflicts of Interest, and I really, really enjoy the show. So um, I guess first things first, let's give a little uh, introduction of you. I think you may have given a brief introduction the last time you were on, but just in case anybody didn't catch that one, it was back in February. So um, we're almost a year out from that. So yeah, dude, good. Yeah, so I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com, which means I put together the viewpoints on that website. Uh, So if you look every day, the spotlight article, the viewpoints, uh, that's me. At the Libertarian Institute, I am the news editor. Uh, Most weeks, I'm writing articles every day for the Institute. Uh, This week, my work's been a little bit scaled bad, so if you're looking past week it's mostly just Dave DeCamp stuff at the institute but typically uh, I'm writing my own stories uh, for the site as well and then I host conflicts of interest and so those are uh, my gigs 
Nice. Yeah. Well, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I do listen to conflicts of interest pretty frequently. And um, I was listening to your episodes, um, your one with Dave DeCamp earlier today, and then uh, the one that you put out with Connor, I think it was either this morning or yesterday. And uh, yeah, that's it's just a great place to get all your anti-war information and also a little bit of uh, opinions on some of the stuff that's going on. So um, part of the reason I wanted to have you on today is because um, you've been digging in a lot into the North Korea stuff, and this is just something that I have no clue about. And um, I, I want to give you kind of like my perspective and what I know, and then you can kind of take it to the history and how we got to where we're at now, because I know that um, Biden, his usual fast has just been escalatory everywhere and very, very careless. Um, so the only thing I know about North Korea is um, Trump called him little rocket man and went over there for uh, supposed peace talks, even though there was nothing like official. Um, he supposedly de-escalated some stuff and kind of brought down tensions that's my very cursory understanding and that's kind of the typical right wing kind of talking point where trump didn't start any new wars and he brought peace in north korea um what's true about that and then how did we get there and then how yeah, did we so, get to where we're at now sorry yeah so i guess you know to, to understand what's happening in korea today i mean obviously like we could replay the korean war and that would be really thorough but i think if we just go back to the clinton administration so people have some kind of contemporary you know with our viewpoints here and look at you know we had a frozen conflict at the after the korean war uh the you know u.s bad south korea and promises to defend south korea against north korea uh and then there's an agreement made during the clinton administration called the agreed framework where north korea was going to essentially enter into something like what what we get with the iran deal in 2015 where they scale back their uh nuclear programs that they have going on although i think at that time north korea was like looking at some weapons and things like that not that they're actually developing weapons but you know maybe further along and eyeing that track a little bit more than the the iranians you know have been but anyways you know the agreed framework is going to like scale back north korea's nuclear program and just make it so it would take them a longer time to build a nuclear bomb should that be you know what they choose to do uh based on uh, you know what what kind of nuclear infrastructure they have like for civilian uh purposes and things like that and so the, you know the u.s was supposed to build them a couple nuclear reactors and things like this and then in exchange north korea would agree to certain limitations and so this is in effect uh during the clinton administration the beginning of the bush administration and from my understanding neither side was fully cooperating with the agreement but the north koreans were not in any way uh, doing what John Bolton accuses them of doing of, uh, you, you know, re refining uranium. Uh, I forget. I think uranium is what he accused them of. And I, I believe all their bombs have been plutonium. So, you know, they're, they're accused of trying to make a bomb and they're not. And this ultimately gets uh, the agreed framework destroyed. It's one of the first deals that John Bolton destroys uh, among many others. Uh, but then we also have uh, the, the North Koreans put on uh, the, the axis of evil. 
with the Iranians and the Iraqis, which I don't know. Like, I remember this when when I was a kid and like I would like I looked at the globe at my grandparents house and I was really confused because Iran and Iraq were right next to each other. And this North Korea was on the opposite side of China. And also, you know, the news showed me what a terrorist looked like in North Korea. Like they, they don't look like terrorists there. So I, as even an 11 year old, that didn't make sense to me. But the North Koreans got the message uh, that, that was being given, which is, you know, these are the countries that are being put on the list of uh, forever being regime changed by the Americans. You know, they got Saddam. They're still trying to get the Ayatollah and they're still trying to overthrow the Kim family uh, in North Korea. So, uh, you know, we, we end up with I, that's what, 2002 or so. So after that, uh, I, I believe this is still Kim Jong Il. Uh, Kim Jong-un's father decides, okay, like I am going to make nuclear weapons because that's the only way uh, to prevent regime change. And look, you know, if you look at what happened with Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi, two countries that had some very rudimentary uh, nuclear program that had an eye on nuclear weapons and countries who gave up, you know, the, those programs and made agreements with the Americans to do so. Well, Gaddafi and Saddam both get killed and Kim Jong, the Kim family is still in charge in North Korea. So, you know, kind of an interesting lesson in all of this. Uh, but I believe it's 2006 North Korea tests their first nuclear weapon. I think they've carried out six tests so far. They're saying that the seventh one is coming up. I believe the most recent test was 2017, along with their, oh, well, prior to this past year, their most recent uh, intercontinental ballistic missile tests were during that time. Uh, but so from my understanding, this is uh, something that I don't like if, if somebody has an alternative perspective on this, I might not know all the alternative perspectives here. I haven't researched it fully. But my understanding is basically North Korea went ahead and made a nuclear weapon and the U.S. was just too bogged down in the Middle East to really do anything about it during the, the Bush administration. So when Obama takes office, he's again bogged down in the Middle East and adopts this policy on North Korea called strategic patience and says that the North Koreans have to give up their nuclear weapons and then the U.S. will agree to talks. And in the meantime, you know, we've put all these sanctions in North Korea as this super isolated and super poor country. Uh, you know, there's travel restrictions on going to North Korea and things like that. Um, so nothing happens diplomacy-wise during the entire uh, Obama administration. And then Trump takes office. And, you, you know, I think a lot of people who are optimistic about Trump coming into office, and I wouldn't say I was optimistic about Trump coming into office, but at the same time, I wasn't just saying, oh, this guy's an idiot and he's going to do a bad job with everything. Because I knew one of the interesting things about Trump is he didn't necessarily adopt the entire foreign policy consensus on everything. And so I thought, hmm, maybe this is somebody who won't just adopt strategic patience, say the North Koreans have to give up their weapons because, you know, this Mr. Dealmaker is going to understand that you can't make a deal when your first condition is your opponent's most red of red lines, right? Like, that, that you know, there's just no path forward then. Uh, but that's not what we end up with. You know, North Korea, right after Trump takes office, carries out some pretty significant weapons tests. And this provokes, you know, some pretty serious exchanges between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. 
including uh, the infamous Little Rocket Man, Fire and Fury tweets, uh, you know, the big red button, these kinds of things. Like, you know, nuclear threats were being exchanged on Twitter. And really what we saw in the first, you know, three quarters of 2017 was, I think, the worst of Trump's possible foreign policy. You know, this reactionary, I'm going to get into Twitter name-calling arguments and everything like that. Uh, there was also a really important event in 2017 that you know nobody in the U.S. really paid attention to, and that was the, uh, the president of South Korea got caught up in a corruption scandal, and I believe she was actually sentenced to jail time after she was impeached. I don't know if she actually served any, but it was at least uh, sentenced, and so. Uh, she was a uh, you know conservative hawk type on the Korea issue, and her ousting paved the way for a very, I think, kind of progressive type leader to come to power in North Korea, uh, in South Korea, excuse me, and that is Moon Jae-in. And so this is a guy who had previously been involved in facilitating the sunshine policy. These were, uh, so what, when the, the, the North and South Korea were separated at the end of the Korean War, essentially a line was just drawn. You know, there were families that had relatives on North and South, you know, brother, sister, uh, uh, you know, husband, not, not probably husband, wife, but uh, definitely mother, son, things like that, you know. And so one of the things he did was facilitated a lot of visits between people uh, who, you know, didn't see their relatives for decades because they were on the wrong side of the lines and helped to set up all these factories and other joint things like that. And so, you know, this is a guy who's a true believer in Korean peace, Tate's office. And I really think uh, he doesn't get enough credit for really opening the possibility of cracking that window for Donald Trump uh, to start to engage with Kim Jong-un. I am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor. I am now working with MTS Nutrition, which is a brand that I've believed in for a very long time, and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products. So um, I want to tell you about their amazing protein powder, which you're going to ask me how many pounds I have of the protein powder, and the answer is all of them. So here I got red velvet cake. 25 grams of protein and they have the amino acids and everything on there 59 servings peanut butter fluff uh, fluffernutter 26 grams of protein and then also the chocolate chip cookie which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there so 27 grams of protein 180 as I've talked about on the show getting your protein is very very important so make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS nutrition and then another really, I think, important thing happens here, and this is the only positive thing I will ever say about my Pompeo, is that when he was director of the CIA around this time, it was late 2017, the CIA, it might have been early 2018, the CIA put out an assessment that basically said Kim Jong-un isn't suicidal. And after that, I really feel like Donald Trump's attitude changed and he recognized that, look, you know, this guy isn't doing this to pick a fight with you. He's not trying to actually like get in a fist fight with Donald Trump. You know, he's trying to, to go the Americans to get the Americans attention and that what the North Koreans really want is a deal. And so finally, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un started changing letters, I think 
Kim first sends Trump a letter. And then we enter into this period uh, of very, I would say, rapid diplomacy. You know, these things, this is a, a seven, what, seven decades long conflict up at this point, frozen conflict at this point. You know, we have unprecedented diplomacy, you know, happening in 2018, 2019, 2020. Uh, between the two sides. And so, you know, between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, you had the Singapore summit. This is, of course, before John Bolton is hired on in the Trump administration. And from this, uh, you have a memorandum signed. And initially, uh, Kim Jong-un is so excited about this. He goes back home. He starts dismantling nuclear sites. He starts dismantling uh, missile engine testing sites. And from the Korean perspective, what that agreement said was North Korea is willing to denuclearize, but once there's a normal relationship between the U.S. and North Korea. So, you know, if the U.S. has, uh, you know, no extra military armaments in South Korea uh, with, you know, we have 26,000 troops there, uh, you know, we say in case North Korea invades and those troops are a threat to North Korea, although I think a lot of these military assets are almost more concerned about China than North Korea in the grand scheme of things. But they are nonetheless a threat to the North Koreans. And, you know, you I, I think it's logical for North, uh, Kim Jong-un to, to see them as a, a threat. And so, you know, that's a North Korean perspective. That, yeah, they are willing to denuclearize once there's a normal relationship between the U.S. and North Korea. And at least the understanding in the Trump administration post-hiring of John Bolton is that North Korea needs to take all the steps first, and then the Americans uh, will, will take those steps down the road. So, um, yeah, so, you know, now we're at, I guess, let's skip ahead to 2019. Uh, oh, by the way, after that, that 2018 uh, agreement, you have like a, a missile test freeze on the North Korean side and the U.S. and the South Korean scale back war games. And that remains in effect more or less uh, through the end of the Trump administration. We'll get into how this changes. So what happens a couple weeks before the, Singapore, uh, the, the Hanoi uh, meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un is Stephen Begum or Begum who is the, the policy director for Trump on North Korea, uh, gave a speech, I believe, at Stanford, basically saying that the Americans were willing to agree to a step-by-step -step agreement with the North Koreans, which basically meant, you know, North Korea was going to, like, scale back some military. That, you know, in the next five years, they were not going to start giving up their nuclear weapons, right? That wasn't the agreement. The agreement was that the North Koreans would start to demilitarize some, and the Americans would start to demilitarize some. Sanctions would be lifted. You know, these things would happen slowly, you know, probably one round, one, each side takes one small step then three months go by both sides evaluate then another set of small steps is taken this is the kind of thing we're talking about a multi-year process and uh donald trump uh invites rather than either donis rodman or tucker carlson or stephen begum into that meeting with kim jong-un he invites uh john bolton in who 
confronts uh, Kim Jong-un with the, the Muammar Gaddafi example. He uses the Libya example and says that North Korea must give up all of its biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons up front. And, you know, that that's it. That That's the end of uh, the diplomacy. After that, you, you know, you have a small step back in the U.S.-North Korean relationship. I think North Korea carried out like a small missile test or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un maintained a personal relationship. And so letters were exchanged. And then in 2020, the summer of 2020, we have the, the very important uh, DMZ meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, you know, this is absolutely historic and you know, a really important thing that happened, uh, obviously. But unfortunately, you know, the agreement between the U.S. and North Korea, as I was saying before, was going to be a very slow step-by-step -step agreement. And Donald Trump isn't talking to Kim Jong-un until there's four months before the election. And so, you know, nothing was able to happen, which is really disappointing. That time, by the way, he sent John Bolton to Mongolia and to Tucker Carlson with him uh, to the meeting with Kim Jong-un, which is probably why that meeting went better. Now, uh, another point to make in all of this, even during the Trump administration, the U.S. sanctions prevented more diplomacy uh, from happening bilaterally between North Korea and South Korea, which was really disappointing. I think probably the best thing that Trump could have done was just told the South Koreans, like, look, like, no, don't worry about the, the sanctions, like build whatever you want in North Korea, send whatever official you want to North Korea, allow North Korean diplomats to live large for free in South Korea, if that's what it takes to foster this diplomacy. Uh, but you you had essentially the opposite happen. You did have like the, the two Koreas agreed to destroy a bunch of like military outposts along the border. We had North Korean and South Korean soldiers like exchanging cigarettes along the border. All of these things were absolutely fantastic for peace, but obviously, you know, didn't lead anywhere. And now uh, when Biden took office, uh, you, you know, the U.S., he said the U.S. was splitting the difference between Trump and Obama, that the U.S. was going to be more open, but really wait for the North Koreans. And they say they've extended the olive branch, but the U.S. says that North Korea must denuclearize. Uh, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House have all said it. Uh, and so the North Koreans have seen that as a, basically a big FU and that the U.S. isn't seriously considering uh, diplomacy under the, the Biden White House. Um, now, maybe most significantly, uh, the, the development that happens uh, during the Biden administration is during uh, the June NATO summit. And this is on the sidelines of the NATO summit in Madrid. The U.S. meets with, uh, uh, I believe, military officials from uh, Japan and South Korea, and they signed a trilateral agreement to step up military ties. Now, uh, you know, Korea was always one group of people you know the north koreans and the south koreans aren't separate ethnic groups it's not that north korea and south korea have always been different cultures and different countries under imperial japan you know korea as a whole was exploited ruthlessly by imperial japan and so i think that there's a lot of 
you know, feeling that in North Korea, particularly that signed this trilateral agreement with Tokyo and Seoul is particularly provocative. And the North Koreans denounced this as the time as Washington trying to create a NATO-like alliance in the Pacific. Uh, and so we have North Korea carrying out a lot more missile tests this year, record number of missile tests in 2022, including, I believe now, two confirmed intercontinental ballistic missile tests. Uh, they fired one missile over Japan. It was erroneously reported that a second missile was fired over Japan last month. Uh, yeah, that was in October. Uh, the U.S. and South Korea have resumed live fire war games and have stepped up war games. Like, for example, this year, they carried out their largest uh, iteration of the Vigilant Storm war games ever using 240 aircraft, including Australian aircraft. Uh, they've also carried out, I believe it's called the Resolute Dragon war games in the uh uh, seas above, uh, north of Japan, uh, and those were trilateral war games. And so, you know, seemed very provocatively by the North Koreans. Um, and, oh, and then, you know, important to note here, I believe it was earlier this year. Yeah, it was, it was early in 2022 that uh, South Korea had a new presidential election and a more conservative, more hawkish candidate, one, Yoon Suk-yul, and he's talked about more strategic nuclear-capable assets to the Korean Peninsula, and the U.S. Lloyd Austin recently affirmed that, yeah, this is happening. So I think that gets us about up to date, but I don't mind this little details here and there. You're muted, dude. Jeez, my bad. <laughs> it seems like to me, there's almost like this gaslighting situation that goes on with these countries who have the potential for weapons, but don't necessarily like, um, when you were speaking about them um, in your enriching plutonium, I believe, um, it kind of reminds me of the whole Iran um, situation where we constantly gaslight Iran and then they enrich uranium, you know, what was it back in the early 2000s, like 2%, and then up to like 2010-ish, somewhere around there, it was like 30%. And then over the last couple of years, we're up to 60% with um, Iran enriching uranium. Um, is this, it almost seems like we're doing the same thing to North Korea, but like they actually have the weapons and that's the main reason why we kind of haven't fucked with them like we fucked with Iraq and Afghanistan is because they actually had weapons. And that seemed to be kind of something you were getting at a little bit earlier, too. I mean, it, I guess it's hard to be sitting in Pyongyang and not feel like the thing that has kept you alive is your nuclear arsenal. <laughs> I get you know why I mean, like, even if that isn't the case, and that's certainly not a lesson that I want to promote as an anti war activist. Right. Like, I want disarmament. Like, it's not mm -hmm. that I want every dictator in the world to realize that, you know, the only way to keep the Americans at bay is to be sitting on a pile of nuclear weapons. But that is kind of the what lesson that the White House teaches everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly, I guess if you look at the past few years I mean, uh, it, the, the U.S. has been a lot more hostile towards Iran than North Korea and North Korea has a bomb and Iran doesn't so that's kind of interesting uh, I guess and you know if you look at what has happened to Bashar al-Assad while he survived the onslaught uh, you know his country that the U.S. still controls a third or a quarter of it so um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's very hard, you know, I, I would imagine to try to convince North Korea that they have to denuclearize. I think that's why, uh, you know, up until 2022, September 2022, Kim Jong-un actually officially changed uh, North Korea's nuclear policy, declared North Korea a nuclear armed state and said that they, uh, you know, said they wouldn't denuclearize until... Every other country denuclearizes, basically. They're, you know, if America gives up our nudes, their nudes, we're willing to give up our nudes, but not until then. And I'm sure they know that America is going to never give up their nudes, and so they get to keep their nuclear weapons forever. Uh, is now the plan in North Korea. Sure, yeah. Well, and the other thing I thought um, that I wanted to touch on as well, um, you mentioned the South Korea um, having troops over in South Korea. And also, I think a little bit in Australia as well, or like some of the bombers over there. Um, how much did this relate to the China situation? Because um, it's something I've been covering a lot on the show because it's really unfolding pretty, pretty ugly. Um, and nobody's really talking about it. Um, how much does this kind of relate to China? Because you mentioned, like I said, um, so, or troops being in South Korea used as kind of like a safeguard against China, but obviously North Korea kind of sees that and they're like, well, <laughs> you know, we don't exactly feel safe with you guys having that along our border. Right. Well, in uh, what was that? I think like 2009 or 2010, uh, Obama announced that the U.S. was going to be putting missile uh, defense systems in Poland and Romania because Europe was threatened by Iran. And so I think that's <laughs> a lot of what goes on in this region, right, where, you know, we are able to say that we're deploying these military assets to deal with North Korea, but everybody in Washington in the Beltway has their eye on Beijing. Like that, at the end of the day, that's the game. And so, you know, Scott Horn has talked about this in the past that, you know, North Korea really does present a uh, an excuse for the American people to deploy military assets against China because Kim Jong-un is this, you know, in our view, insane dictator that has to be dealt with. And China's been very demonized over the, the past couple of years, right. particularly the, the Biden and Trump administrations have really cemented China in the minds of a lot of Americans as an enemy. So I understand that this is now maybe getting more to be an outdated position, but I think for a long time, like, you know, if we wanted to deploy that or Patriot missiles to the region, it made a lot more sense to Americans that, you know, the, the adversary would be Kim Jong-un, uh, not, uh, you know, Chairman Xi. Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically what you're saying is that a lot of people kind of would have thought like, well, because um, Kim Jong-un is such a, you know, wild, crazy dude that we kind of have to have some kind of backups in case he tries to mess around with America. Whereas now it's more of an accepted position that, hey, if uh, China gets big, bad, and tough because they're the number one enemy, as the State Department has said consistently, then it's probably better that we arm South Korea and have you know missiles and defenses over in South Korea so that way we can defend China because you know China's going to take over the world, or at least that's what the government would have everybody believe in this current time. Right. And, and well, and like I said, now, like in both cases, right, we don't need missile defenses and we don't need Iran as the excuse for missile defenses in Europe. We don't need China as the, or North Korea as the excuse for missile defenses in the Pacific. But for a long time, you know, this was the case. So I do think that has a lot to do with it. But of course, now 
you know, one, the, this hostile policy is ingrained within, you know, the American system. And so North Korea has to be isolated, right? We can't take sanctions back on North Korea because then we're weak and, and looking easy. You know, this is a, a great point brought up uh, so frequently by Daniel Larison, who, who's a great foreign policy commenter and, uh, you know, more from the conservative angle, definitely. And one of the things he always says, you know, the, the consensus in Washington is we can never le leave up on sanctions on any of these countries out of fear of looking weak. It never even comes up as a debate. So, um, yeah, like, you know, there's not even discussion about removing sanctions on North Korea. This policy is just permanent and creates, and sanctions are economic warfare, specifically the kind of sanctions that are on North Korea that are really limiting. You know, yeah, some sanctions maybe on Zimbabwe that, you know, target more a particular political figure, but on North Korea, they're just sweeping and they're meant to kill people, you know, um, I believe it was Mike Pompeo who said after a ship of a bunch of starved to death North Koreans washed up in on some like Japanese island that this was proof that the American sanctions were starting to bite and be effective. Wow. Yeah, that's fucking hideous. Um, so and it always seems like their sanctions are typically used. The goal typically is, hey, we want to piss off the citizenry so much that they overthrow their government. That usually seems to be the goal. So what kind of were the sanctions that were laid on North Korea? Because if I remember correctly, the Trump sanctions on China were only for like steel and um, there were Biden really put sanctions on Russia on like mostly their exports and like fuel and energy, if I remember correctly. Now, I, I could be mistaken, so feel free to correct me. So I guess the question would be, what kind of sanctions were placed on North Korea? And do you believe that it was kind of the same goal that they wanted Kim Jong-un out of there? Oh, yeah. So the, the goal in North Korea is definitely regime change of the Kim family. I don't know, you know, maybe the, they they... The, the media has a weird fascination with the sister uh, of Kim Jong-un, who's possibly, you know, they fantasize her about being next in line. I don't know if you remember back in like 2021 or something. I don't know. It's probably like 2017. They were talking about how, you know, North Korea could have a female leader before the United States and how great <laughs> that would be. Uh, like fucking crazy. Limited. So, no, I think the goal is regime change and displacement of the Kim family in North Korea, adopting, you know, a, you know, a regime friendly to Washington would put, you know, that government and, and that military on a border with North, uh, with China and Russia. And so that, I'm sure has its incentives and its interests. Uh, this, there's a lot of international sanctions on North Korea because of their nuclear program. A lot of these sanctions are agreed to by the UN. Uh, so it, it, it's almost like, I, I think, embargo level in sanctions uh, to, to a large extent. A lot of the sanctions allow the Americans to intercept ships they claim are smuggling goods and are out of North Korea. I think North Korea is allowed to export some coal uh, and, and that number is like debated through the UN uh, but the Americans really crack down on any kind of North Korean imports or exports. Trump uh, instituted a travel ban against North Korea. I believe that is still in effect. Uh, and then the Sanctions against Russia are fairly sweeping against the whole Russian economy. There are some uh, different sectors like, you know, Europe still imports energy from Russia. It's not that uh, Russian energy has been completely cut off from the European market, but they're trying to scale back. 
Uh, a lot of other Russian goods have been completely cut off. The, there's previous rounds of sanctions on, you know, things all the way from cheese to, to you know, more manufacturing type products that have existed, you know, since going back to 2014 against Russia. Uh, I know that the one thing that isn't sanctioned is like agricultural products, so food, fertilizer, things. Things like that. Uh, Russia is just such a large supplier uh, that that and energy just just aren't getting sanctioned. And look, you know, the, the West recently instituted these price caps on Russian oil. So this is the new scheme. Since they can't actually sanction it, uh, they're trying to institute price caps to say that, you know, if country A wants to buy, like India wants to buy oil from Russia, they have to do it at under, say, $70 a barrel. They'll be hit with U.S. sanctions. Well, India and China said, well, we're not going to listen to whatever the price cap. Oh, well, the, the, these price caps don't apply to India. Well, what India is doing is they're buying Russian oil and then selling it to the Europeans. And so, you know, all these all these things that are being sanctioned by Russia and, and things, uh, I, I think the sanctions are a lot different because everybody really needs what Russia has, where not everybody needs what North Korea has, you know, that just their their the role of their economy in the world market is insignificant, and Russia's is, as we found out over the past ten months, extremely significant. So, uh, that it, it's just North Korea is really isolated in a way that Russia can't be. So, if, yeah, it kind of seems like then by what you're saying that the sanctions on russia were basically meant to punish everybody kind of going to russia first stop to help kind of bleed russia out and it really seems like the sanctions placed against north korea were meant to hurt north korea specifically like as in punish the north korean people does that sound about right i guess i think that the sanctions on russia were more of a tactical blunder mm -hmm on the part of the Biden administration. There is some reporting. It was from a fairly mainstream source. And I, I want to say this was like May or June, basically saying that they demonized Russia so much leading up to the war, but they actually can't go to war with Russia. And so they, they basically forced themselves to put these extreme sanctions on Russia as the only way for their policy to match their rhetoric because they couldn't actually launch any military action against Russia. And so uh, I, I think that has something to do with it. I think they really hoped that this would do a lot of damage to the Russian economy, and it's done some, and it'll probably do more as time goes on. But it's going to do a lot of damage to the European economies and the African economies and the world economy, too, and probably a lot more to the European economies than to the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah. And as usual, we see that these sanctions normally do backfire like they normally never quite necessarily perform the uh, targeted goal. So I guess kind of pivoting to some of the uh, Russia-Ukraine stuff. Um what else has been going on? Because I know most recently, um, last week I was on my honeymoon, so I wasn't quite as, you know, in a loop with everything. Um, there was that missile that was supposedly a Russian missile going for Ukraine, and it had been intercepted um, by Ukraine, and it killed some Polish farmers. And I know that there was a big hand-waving, and some of these ridiculous people, you know, the anti-war right people were saying we need to file for Article 5 to start a war with Russia, which is absolutely hysterical. But then it was found out that, yeah, like I said, it was a Ukrainian missile intercepting a Russian missile. Um, has there been any kind of more stuff going on? I, I can't 
I've been listening to Dave, but you know, I've been trying to catch up on all the podcasts. So, you know, kind of a little oversaturated, just trying to kind of catch up on everything. What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement pretty much in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut. And, uh, mix that all up. It tastes really, really good. So uh, yeah, make sure you drop by, go to drinklmnt.com slash inliberty and health and uh, pick you up some electrolytes today. All right, guys. Thanks. Oh, man. I should go back through my phone and try to find the test and read to you. But my little brother <laughs> tested me after that happened. And he said, what do I think? And I said, well, you know, you, you can't know for sure. But my guess is that a Ukrainian air defense missile misfired probably an s300 and landed in polish territory and killed some people and i I think i was about spot on uh with everything that happened but really so how this all so this is infuriating to me i guess you know as i'm now a writer like that's what i do like i cover these kinds of stories and what happened here is that some u.s official told an ap journalist that this uh, a russian missile has landed in you uh in poland and killed two people and we now the journalist was fired yesterday i believe and we now know that the ap editor the associated press editor said it doesn't seem like a u.s official would lie about this and so they ran the story well it turns out that, you know, it wasn't a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian, you know, S-300 missile that was fired, which, by the way, are Soviet-era missiles, so they are produced by Russia. So there's a lot of people afterwards who changed their headline from a Russian missile to a Russian-made missile, which, it, you know, is obviously very different, right? Like, right. obviously, countries are somewhat responsible for arms proliferation, right? Like, when the U.S. sells Saudi Arabia a bomb and then they use that bomb to blow up a, a school bus full of Yemeni children. Yeah, like the U.S. bears responsibility for that. But is that the same thing as a U.S. bomber blowing up a school bus full of children? No, it, it's obviously not, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, even then, like Saudi Arabia bombs civilian targets all the time. It's not like Russia's bombing Polish uh, targets all the time or anything like that. But anyways, so it, it's very obvious, you know, that, it just didn't make sense. Like, why would Russia strike some random farm in Poland? You know, I mean, right. kill two civilians. Now, like, you, we don't know. Like, anything was possible initially. Like, maybe these uh, Polish farmers were involved in some crazily smuggling scheme in there, bringing some advanced weapons <laughs> into Ukraine. And Russia decided to take a shot at them because they thought they could get away with it. Like, you, you know, you never know. Like, crazy things happen in the world. But that's a pretty absurd story. And missile defense systems misfire and land and, and blow things up in places they shouldn't. 
fairly frequently in warfare. Like anybody who covers war should be generally familiar with it, you know, this being something that happens. And again, the motive wise, this really didn't make sense at all for the Russians to do. And so that, you know, that that's another huge issue. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, it, it comes out, you know, the, the I think the day after the missile strike, we have Biden, uh, Jen Stoltenberg, who is the secretary general of NATO. I think he's from Norway. And then uh, Duda, the, the president of Poland, all coming out and more or less confirming that you, this wasn't a Russian a missile that, you know, Vladimir Putin ordered be fired from Russia and land in, in Poland. Like that is not what happened here. And yet the, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, actually doubled and tripled down on this and said, no, you know, <laughs> it was a Russian missile. Now, there were a lot of commenters out there who basically changed their narrative from Putin did this to well, it's still Russia's fault. It, if anybody wants to go back and listen to the story, the, the episode I recorded like a half hour after this whole thing, after the AP made the report, and I said that this probably was a Ukrainian air defense missile, even at that time, I said, look, it is 100% true that you know, that Ukraine would have never fired the air defense missile had Russia not launched a missile at a, a target in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. All that is true. But there's a huge and very, very important difference between Russia attacking Poland and, and Polish citizens being the victim of warfare in a country next door, right? Like accidents happen. And when we're talking about nuclear armed states, people have to add, understand accidents happen and, and find ways to move forward, right? Yeah. The, the, those are different from deliberate attacks. And it's just sickening to like look at our you know, foreign policy establishment class and get they got so attached to that narrative that Russia attacked Poland that they couldn't break away from it at all and continued again to, you know, even when they have to admit they're wrong. Well, this is a Russian made missile that was only fired because Russia tried to bomb Ukraine. And so it's all Russia's fault that two Polish citizens are dead. And now we have to embark Article 4 instead of Article 5 of the NATO Charter, right? Like, you know, that's how much they shifted their narrative. And, you know, this still implies is that our ally is under attack from Russia and we have to invoke NATO to do something about, you know, that's a very scary situation that we're sitting on. Now, the little bit of good news in all this is Zelensky made an ass of himself, unbelievably so. Um, you, you know, that he doubled and tripled down on this. And as far as I understand, like maybe I, I missed a news story today. I have been traveling this week and spending a little bit more time with family. So I, I, you know, maybe missed like one little story about, oh, Zelensky did officially admit it was a Ukrainian missile, but you, you know, it would have been very important for him to say it was a Ukrainian missile and he refused to do to so. And apparently uh, the Biden administration warned him to tread carefully, which for as uh, sycophantic as the, the foreign policy establishment of the entire West has been towards Zelensky, that, that's a pretty serious rebuke uh, that he got from the White House on this issue. So, that, you know, maybe this guy has damaged his reputation and, and th that could be one of the things that starts to get the West somewhat less interested in continuing this war for how many, who knows how many years to come. 
Yeah, one of the other things that I know um, you guys have kind of talked about over at Anti-War has been um, this idea that the Biden administration was kind of saying like, hey, I need you to be a little bit more grateful for the aid that we're giving, which is absolutely hilarious that they even have to say that. And then now this it, it and now they're also talking about diplomacy, if I remember correctly, not like big talks, but there was some kind of hints from the administration that um, if I remember correctly, um Lloyd Austin might be talking to some people in the Russian military, and you can correct me where I'm wrong here, but I know there was something about talks. So it seems like we have very, very small things to be optimistic about, but um, you know, they also seem to be keying at that they're going to be in this war for the long term. But there's also some things to be optimistic about. So what's your take on some of that, and what did I get wrong, if anything? So I, you know, I guess this this is hard because. We're basically, you know, just reading tea leaves here and, you know, we, we get these conflicting stories basically at times and, you know, you got to try to decipher and feel like what's going on. And, you know, even among the anti-war team, we don't always agree with like how this is playing out. And I think uh, Dave DeCamp, you know, from talking, I, I feel like he's a little bit more optimistic than I am where I'm pretty pessimistic about what's going on here. So, uh Austin did hold talks with uh, his Russian counterpart, the Russian uh, defense minister, on a Friday and then on a Monday. I believe Austin initiated the Friday talks and the Russians initiated the Monday talks. And the Russians apparently mainly talked about uh, a concern that the Ukrainians were going to use a dirty bomb and uh, the Americans dismissed it. And that's all we really know of those conversations. After that, we got a report in the Washington Post that said that the administration wanted Ukraine to, I think, essentially draw a less hard line because Zelensky signed a decree saying that he cannot, that the Ukrainian government cannot talk with the Russian government. Like, you, like as long as Vladimir Putin is in charge, there could be no negotiations between Moscow and Kiev, right? That, that, that was Zelensky's decree. And so I think the White House said to walk that back, but specifically not because they want to like open the door for diplomacy, but because they were worried that the European allies were getting upset with, uh, with Zelensky and Kiev's general attitude and position. And because of that, um, the Europeans, some of the support, people are getting frustrated, essentially. And there's been protests. Connor Freeman, I think you you know mentioned, you talked to him a bunch. Connor's absolutely excellent. He's my co-host. He's done a yeah. lot of this coverage, either for antiwar.com or the Libertarian Institute, about how people in Italy, the Czech Republic, and elsewhere in Europe have engaged in protests and are demanding their government lift these sanctions and, you know, draw back on their support for the Ukrainian war effort because, you, you know, they, they see the bigger picture here that this isn't all just an aggressive war from moscow that you know th this is a far more complicated thing and how the western actions have really hurt uh the people of the west and they're just, you know they're tired of suffering uh for the ukrainians when Zelensky is being so ungrateful and so unwilling to to engage in any diplomacy whatsoever uh you know while fighting on somebody else's dime kind of i i think perspective and so because of that the biden administration tells the ukrainians that hey you guys gotta engage in talks a little bit but that um 
but I, I think largely that's been like kind of the, the push and the idea for diplomacy from the White House has mainly just centered around we, we have to do it for PR reasons. I don't think they're actually interested in ending this war anytime soon. And one of my reasons for that is they're currently setting up a 300-man command in Germany to facilitate weapons transfers to Germany. And it's going to be headed by a three-star general. So three-star general usually means that, you know, you got enough job security to where you're going. So he plans to be there for a long time i think okay yeah i know i actually haven't heard anybody cover that so yeah it kind of sounds like they're under this impression that russia really wants to expand out and kind of make the you know the soviet union great again which um i, I was just listening earlier to uh the ron paul liberty report where um today they literally said that our atu ukraine is now totaled over 100 what is it 105 billion dollars and Russia is having a hell of a time getting past Ukraine. So if they're struggling to get past Ukraine and, you know, the whole West is pouring all this money into them, what makes them think that Russia has any will or even capability to go beyond that? It's just absolute insanity to me that we're supposed to believe that Russia is going to be this imperialistic empire and they're going to expand when they're just, like I said, they're getting their ass handed to them at some points by Ukraine. Now, I think that russia is probably still has a slight upper hand but it's not great so like i said i don't think that they're going to be able to conquer all of europe if they would really want to i I just don't foresee that happening but people for some reason think that we need to just keep shipping money you know good over bad over to ukraine because that's what they're going to do if we let them have ukraine yeah i i mean I wish I had my thoughts a little bit more together on this because I, I could probably lay out a lot more succinctly, you know, kind of the point I'm going to make, but I'll, I'll just do it kind of shortly here. Sure. Uh, there's a 2019 study from the Rand Corporation that basically says one day we may have to compete with Russia, so we need to draw them into a conflict in Ukraine to bleed them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, ultimately, I think that's what's happening here, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think this is about Russian imperial ambitions. I think this is a, essentially an intentional policy among, you know, the, the Western, the Washington, Brussels, London foreign policy consensus that says Russia and China are going to want to compete with the United States, you know, and the West as the, you know, global imperial financial dictator of the world right you know the the country that can embargo any other country and you know where basically the unipolar world dictates come from right they want to prevent that from from beijing and russia having a larger say and so i think they see step one is weakening russia and step two is weakening china and so you know they've spent years and years and years further provoking russia over these areas in eastern ukraine in the donbass in the crimean peninsula you know remember at times they're talking about building military bases along the Sea of Azov. Uh, the, the, there's reports that Ukraine was going to like carry a, a ship under the Kerch Bridge and blow it up. And, you know, very serious provocations were happening well before this war started. Uh, you know, um, a UK ship, you know, coming within a few miles of, of the uh, Crimean coast at times. You know, the, these kinds of things uh, that were happening in 2021. Uh, 
to provoke Russia uh, into fighting a war in Ukraine. And look, you know, Putin shouldn't have taken the bait because look how poorly it has worked out for his country. However, for anybody in the West who wants to pretend that, that, that anybody in Washington gives a damn about a single Ukrainian, Ukraine could have had more territory and a far better deal for years and years and years and years if the West had just pressured any Ukrainian leader to implement the Minsk agreement or anything. But they, they have no interest in that because, you know, the, the Ukraine battlefield provides an opportunity to bait Russia into a bloodletting situation. And I think long term they'll see uh, a weakened Russia makes China a more vulnerable target. And, and so... Yeah, you know, this is just full on, you know, disgusting and about maintaining empire. Yeah, I I think so as well. So kind of wrapping up here, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this because we touched on a little bit um, the last time you were on. Um, 2024, our uh, King DeSantis is being poised as the uh, as kind of the next GOP pick. And by all indications congressional record and even his rhetoric as governor he is as hawkish on china and he is absolutely terrible on iran like um in a little group chat that we all have together um dave had shared a video where um ron since was talking about the syrian policy in iran and um it just it's amazing how bad he was and his one good issue was back in like 2012 13 i think where he opposed regime change in syria but then once trump got into office he was all about bombing them and the uh you know the whole gas attack so we have to go you know do whatever over there um what are your thoughts on the foreign policy that we're probably going to see um over the next i would say four to six years and what's probably going to be a DeSantis administration. I really hope we just don't have to deal with Ron DeSantis as president and that his <laughs> political campaign really doesn't get off the ground. He, you know, I, I know a lot of libertarians are fairly happy with uh, DeSantis as governor of Florida. And so maybe he does an okay job. I no, I, I don't go to Florida. I don't know. I, I feel like most American governors still don't meet my standard of, uh, you know, what, what a good libertarian is. But, you know, he may be better than most on a lot of these important issues to libertarians, in which case, like, you know, if you if you like him as governor of Florida, then don't listen to anything I'm saying, because as governor of Florida, he can't decide to bomb Iran, which is good because he wants to, you know, he's, I, th I think the most important thing we, me, myself and Connor Freeman, just to show on this, and I had Connor do the breakdown. So he's like far more in the details and in the weeds on this, but the, from listening to Connor, the number one takeaway, the guy wrote an op-ed with Tom Cotton, who's, you know, absolutely the worst on foreign yeah. policy. And so if, DeSantis is in the the Tom Cotton you know kind of boat there now like who knows right like maybe this guy uh, over time piles around with the right kind of conservatives like uh you know Matt Gates, Josh Hawley, Tucker Carlson look I'm not like endorsing these guys I'm just saying that on some issues they are better and maybe his foreign policy on Iran on Syria on Israel isn't going to be as bad as the past has indicated but it the I think it will be, and it's going to be real bad. The guy's a neocon, right? I, I think we're looking at a Bush administration and 
you know, for all of us, you know, who taught, you know, for us libertarians the past, like, four years uh, over all the, like, liberal freakouts, one of the things we said, like, don't you remember George W. Bush? Like, Donald Trump didn't open a torture prison, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he didn't kill a million Iraqis. Mm -hmm. He didn't, uh, you know, start two new wars, right? Like, the, the guy was terrible, but, like, he didn't kill a million people, which is kind of important and um yeah and and so to say like oh desantis is going to be better really doesn't make sense to me i think he's going to be a lot worse and you know george bush as far as i could tell is about the worst uh, a president could be at this point i biden's pretty bad too uh but that that seems to be the direction that desantis will take us again who knows like i People change, especially politicians. They could be influenced, and so we could hope for the best. Uh, you, you know, we we are aren't really in the election, I guess, campaigning season yet. And so once he, you know, announces and starts to talk about his policies, then I, I I'll I'll feel more comfortable just slamming the guy. Uh, but I know people are gonna say, "Oh, you don't know," and yeah, I guess I don't, but I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've kind of rode the same wave as you in this respect. Um, I've looked up his voting record and then all his rhetoric. Um, it, just the one talking point that I, I can't just – it drives me nuts is people saying China's buying all the farmland. And it literally takes a Google search in like two seconds and you'll find, oh, they don't own like anything at all here. Like, yeah, they may be buying some, but like compared to any other country that owns land here, it is so small. In fact, I think they're one of the smallest landowners – out of anybody who owns land in the United States. But for some reason, it's just China. And, you know, of course, he had banned products. I think that there was something about a, a, the Uyghur Muslim stuff, which is funny because he absolutely voted to bomb and kill many, 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 many Muslims. But for some reason, we have to freak out and hand wave over the supposed, big key word there, supposed mistreatment of Uyghur Muslims by the Chinese. It's it's always so funny to me to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, dude, this was a, a good chat, and I'm going to have to probably listen over again as I did with our uh, last show together. Um, Kyle, where can everybody find you, dude? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Kyle Anzalone underscore. We also have a Twitter account for the show at Con underscore interest. Uh, check out antiwar.com every day. The Libertarian Institute, I'm in the news section almost every day. I do put out news roundup uh, somewhat frequently at the, the Institute. And uh, yeah, thanks uh, so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, dude. Well, we'll definitely do it again. I'd love to have you, Connor, and Pat back on to just uh, shoot the shit about anything that's going on. And, uh, you know, um, everyone make sure you go like and subscribe as, and like subscribe and share to my channel also uh conflicts of interest with kyle and connor um both guests on this show multiple times now and um i listen to their stuff all the time it helps me stay informed with foreign policy and um until next time everybody take care without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.